few Bibles scattered around here and there. Love for you to grab one of those, take one, take one out so you know that I'm not just making this stuff up. You laugh, but I'm telling you, sometimes it's really easy to forget, right? Um, so, let's be honest. Most people in our culture, church or not, would not consider the message of Christianity to be freedom, right? I mean, for, for most, it's a straitjacket. It's like a joy, a buzzkill. It's meant to uh, kind of restrict us and that kind of thing. And yet, we've been calling this series that we've been um, engaging in through the book of Galatians, Freedom. And we've been doing that out of a, a, a central conviction. And that conviction is that the, cent- the, the Christianity and the central message of Christianity, the gospel, does in fact free us. It frees us from the need to make ourselves right. It frees us from... Uh, bondage and slavery to those things that harm us. It frees us from having to create and maintain an identity. It It frees us from feelings of, and not just feelings of, but the reality of guilt. It can even free us from the shame that so often meets us in the mirror in the morning. And this morning we come to an important question. And in fact, an important point in the history of Christianity in general, the world, I would say also, is there anything that we need to add to the finished work of Jesus to be right before God? Ah, even better. Is there anything we need to add to the finished work of Jesus to be righter before God? Is there anything? What if those things are good things? What if those things are deeply treasured things? What if they're very important to us? What if they're religious even? It's the, the event that we're going to hear about, the event of, uh, that we're told in Galatians 2, 1 to 10, deals specifically with that. So uh, let's, let's read that. So if you'd stand in honor of God's word. Like I said, if you're looking in one of those pew Bibles, it's on the, that page right there, 1236. You can follow along. Love to have you do that. This is God's word. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. In order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved from you. And from those who seemed influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel of the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel of circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry of the circumcised worked also through me for mine of the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? 
Jesus, we're coming in this room with lots of stuff. Some of us are full of faith and energetic, wanting to be in this time so that we might celebrate who you are and rejoice in you and learn from you. Others of us are just clinging to the gospel by our fingernails. And still others are coming in here and we don't know what we think of any of this. We're distracted. We are struggling over the things we did this week, maybe, maybe even last night. We're wondering, some of us, is it even okay for me to be here? And so, Lord, I ask that you would work in all of us, no matter what we've brought into this room, that what we would take away from it is the beauty of your finished work. Jesus, you promised that when you were lifted up, that you would draw all men to yourself. And so now, Jesus, as we do lift you up, we ask that you would draw all of us, all people to yourself, that your name would be made great, that East Orlando would flourish, and that, Lord, uh, we might be who you have made us to be. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So preachers have a penchant for exaggeration. This is true. I think it's true of pretty much anyone who, who uh, spends their life speaking in front of people, but it's especially true, I think, of preachers. That being said, there is a great argument that can be made that this passage this morning describes one of, if not the most, important event in the history of Christianity. It does so because it is kind of, there's a pivotal moment here. It's ultimately the first test of the gospel. As the gospel moves out beyond those who are culturally Jewish, will it be the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that gets the front stage? Or will it be Jesus plus something else? Paul forces the issue. What do we do with those who are not culturally Jewish, religiously Jewish? Are they not fully right with God through faith in Jesus alone? Or will they also need to become Jewish? And that's what, that's what we end up seeing here. And I know that seems really strange to many of us, if not all of us, because very few of us, if any, have a, any Jewish heritage, right? So we're like, I mean, didn't we kind of solve this question? Yeah, in a sense. If the issue is just, do they have to be culturally Jewish, I would say, this is pretty good evidence that maybe we solved that question. But what if it's culturally something else? What if it's culturally evangelical? What if it's culturally American? What if it has to look like what we do? Praise God that he preserved his church that day and Lord willing will do the same for us today because what we are going to see this morning is that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing at all gives you everything. Okay? So let's dig into that. So we get into this message, and, and particularly the line in the sand, if, if you're following along in the outline, let's just remember where we've come from. Remember, if you've been here the last few weeks, you'll know that, and if not, don't worry, that's what I'm about to do, is help you kind of catch up. Paul has been, Paul, who's an early Christian leader, one of the earliest Christians, um, a guy who planted churches and started Christian churches throughout the Mediterranean world, 
This guy, Paul, has been answering in this letter a challenge. And that challenge has come both to him and the message that he preached about Jesus, what he calls his gospel, right? Good news, the, the central message of Christianity. And so last week we heard him say that uh, in, in light of the kind of the claim that what Paul is actually doing, is he's, he's kind of lowering the standards. We're not really sure why he's doing what he's doing, but he's lowering the standards of things. And he, he wants to tell us that I am the least likely person in the world to be a missionary. The least likely person to want to see others become Christians because I spent the first part of my life trying to kill them. Until suddenly, I had an encounter with the risen Jesus. He tells us that he received both his message and his mission from Jesus, and that he wasn't commissioned by any of the early Christian leaders before him. Okay, remember all this? Just nod, it helps me feel better. All right, you know, of course, that isn't to say that all the Christian leaders were unaware of him. He had gotten to know Peter and James, and now we hear of another event that kind of furthers Paul's argument that his message is, is along lines with, consonant with, their message, even if, it even if they received it separately. Okay, so now look down at verses 1 and 2. Paul says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking along Titus. I went up according to a revelation. All right, now stop there. So, we have jumped 14 years into the future. From the last point, we are now 14 years later. Uh, and Paul is going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, and some of us don't quite understand that lingo. Have you ever noticed in the Bible everyone goes up to Jerusalem? Okay. When you believe that your city, your capital city, is the center of the universe, everything is going up towards it. And you go down to go away from it. Last place I ministered, they thought the same thing about their city. But um, <laughs> it's true. They would all say we're all going up to Stanton and down to everywhere else. But anyway, uh, so... Paul is going to Jerusalem with two other people. Both Paul and this guy named Barnabas are, are leaders in a church. That church is in a city called Antioch, which is north of, uh, of Jerusalem. And that church is incredibly diverse. You're diverse culturally, you're diverse racially, it's just, and the leadership is very diverse. And they are both, Barnabas and Paul, culturally and heritage-wise, they are Jewish, right? Titus, this other guy they're taking with them, he is not. He's a protege of Paul's. He's going to be an eventual planter of churches. Like he's going to be a pastor. He's going to be one that starts churches in a, in a, a, a nice little island called Crete. Um, but he had no Jewish background. And secondly, Paul says he's going up because of a revelation. Now, you can read about this if you're, if you're wondering where this takes place. You can read about this in the book of Acts, right? Acts 11, 27 to 30 is what kind of is talking about this time period. The revelation that he says is the reason why he went up is not someone's got bad theology. The revelation is not someone is trying to cause trouble in the church. The revelation was there's a famine coming. And so Paul and Barnabas and Titus are taking with them financial help to the church in Jerusalem, okay? Now, if you are familiar with the Bible at all, let me be very clear. If you're familiar with the story and all this stuff, let me be clear, because some of you are, and you'll be thinking about this. Others of you, if you're not, just check out for a second. This is not the Jerusalem Council. Let me be clear. What he's going up for is not what happens in Acts 15. It's what happens in Acts 11. Why is that important? 
Because if what happened in Acts 15 had already happened, then Paul wouldn't even be writing Galatians. He'd say, see letter written by James. Right? He wouldn't have to do that. But he does, and so this is before that. Okay? Now, Paul continues. Check back in if you, if, if you were out. Paul continues, I laid before them the gospel which I preached to the Gentiles privately to those of reputation, lest somehow I, I would find out I was running or had run in vain. Okay? So stick with me. This is really important and very easy to misunderstand. Paul came to Jerusalem to bring money, but he used this as an opportunity for something else. And the something else they used this as an opportunity for was to see how the other apostles would handle what he was preaching. How would they handle it? Because it's not as if when he went through the Mediterranean world, he didn't hear some of the objections. That he didn't run into those who were from the synagogue who had a problem with what he said. He heard it all. Some of them were very violent against him, right? Got stoned, got beaten, all this stuff. So he wants to know, how are the other apostles going to receive what I'm saying? And not just what I'm saying, but let me give them an actual case study. Let me bring with me a friend of mine named Titus, okay? That word that we translate laid before, um, it, it means to present for consideration. And he's taking this to the apostles privately, and he wants them to consider what he's been saying. Now, the question is, why? Many of us will read this, if you're, if, if, whether you're a Christian or not, you may read this and think what Paul's wanting to do is to make sure he's right, right? To see if I had run, if I was running or had run in vain. Paul's not sure, you see. He needs Peter and James and John and all these other guys who were originally Jesus' disciples to give him assurance. Yeah, no, no, this is right. Does that sound like the Paul that we run into all the time? Do you, does Paul strike you, if, you, if you're familiar with the Bible, does Paul strike you as someone who just struggles to know, am I in the right on this? <laughs> no, that's not our Paul. For good or for ill, sometimes it worked very good for him, sometimes it didn't. See his little argument with Barnabas over Mark. That's not what he's doing. Here's what we know. Paul, before he became a Christian, had believed that what made him pleasing to God was that he he, had, he was part of Abraham's family, and he kept the law. And not only did he keep it, he was zealous to keep it. And that zeal, if you remember last week, didn't just mean he was really passionate. It meant he saw violence as a viable option to purifying his faith. So you go after those who aren't part of your faith with violence. He was very good at this. He was very religious. I doubt that he would have said he was perfect, right? I mean, Judaism does have this whole thing called the sacrificial system. He'd say, no, I'm not perfect. I'm doing what I've been told to do, though. I'm doing it. Doesn't change the fact that he believed his religious observance, his morality, the devotion, is what made him either right before God or, like I said before, writer before God right? Righter than others. Then he met Jesus, and what was revealed to him in meeting Jesus was that his morality, his religiosity, all those things that he had put all of his faith in and all of his trust in and all of his energy and time into, his seeking to earn that place with God was just as sinful as the immorality that he saw of those compromised Jews, 
those compromised people, those immoral Gentiles, those nominal Jewish people. In other words, Paul saw that he was just as lost in being religious as the notorious person was lost in being notorious. Paul needed a savior just as much as others, though his life looked way cleaner. And so he placed his faith in Jesus and saw that it was Jesus and Jesus alone that made him right before God. And so through faith, Paul was united to Jesus. And this is what this means. Can we talk about union with and all this stuff? These are theological jargon, but here's what it, here's what it means. To be united to Jesus by faith is to say that what is true of Jesus becomes true of you, or true, in this case, of Paul. In other words, his death, Jesus' death for sin became Paul's death for sin. Jesus' perfect life became Paul's perfect life because they are in union. He is in Christ, in Jesus. You, if, you're, if you're reading any of Paul, you see it all over the place. In, 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 in. That's what he means. What's true of him is now true of me. This means that if Jesus alone could save Paul, who was a murderer of Jesus' own people, that Jesus alone could rescue anybody. Anybody. This was, the, this was the gospel that Paul took to the Gentiles. And this was a message that Paul had no doubt about. None. This is why he says at the beginning of this letter, I didn't get it from anybody. I got it from a revelation of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus shows up and he starts telling you stuff and he's resurrected and he starts telling you, believe it and you don't go, yeah, I'm not sure. Right? That's what he's doing. He's not presenting this to the apostles to get their approval. He's presenting this to the apostles to make sure they have the gospel. Do they have it right? Do they have it right that this is, this goes, this is now a worldwide family that goes beyond our Jewish trappings? Do they get it right? I'm trying, Paul says, to take the gospel to the Gentiles so that through the through the gospel, there might be one family of Abraham of all tribes, tongues, and nations. Do they believe that? Because if not, this is not going to work. And that's why he brought Titus. Here's my test case. Here's this Greek guy. Dirty, filthy Greek people. That's what the Jews, I mean, Jewish people thought. The Gentiles were just filthy. They just were dirty. They didn't. They didn't wash their hands, you know, they just, hygiene was awful. And here's this, here he is, what are you going to do with him? And some of you, if you're not familiar with the Bible, I, I know it was very confusing, it's probably distracting, how many times I just, you know, when reading, talked about circumcision. I, I know it might be a little uncomfortable for, for many of us. You have to understand that in, 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 the, day, in, in the Bible, when we're talking about circumcision, we're not talking about just like, I mean, come on, guys, isn't that a little private? No, it's, it's actually a, a sign that God gave to his people that they were part of his people, okay? So again, when Paul's talking about it, when he says the circumcised, he's talking about Jewish people. The uncircumcised, he's talking about everybody else, okay? Paul says, I brought Titus, and though he was a Greek, no one tried to force the knife on him. Not a person which means they agreed that you don't need to add anything to the work of Jesus, not a religious symbol, not rituals, not law-keeping, not anything. Jesus and Jesus alone is enough to save. You with me? 
Okay. But it's not over. Look down at verses 4 and 5. Paul says this about these false brothers who sneaked in to spy out the freedom that we had in Christ and that they're trying to bring them into bondage but that they didn't yield, yield to them for an instant. Here's what this means. Most likely, outside of this gathering, there are some folks, Jewish folks, maybe Pharisees like Paul was. Who knows? It doesn't really matter. But there are these Jewish folks who were kind of coming in trying to figure out what is this, what is this Christian thing? I mean, they didn't call it that. What is this thing they called the way? What is this thing that, that seems to talk about a, a crucified Messiah? That's weird. Let's go figure this out. So they, they kind of snuck in, he says, snuck in. They were false brothers. We'll get to that in a second. And what they're trying to do is, to, is when this test case is presented, they're going, no, 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 no. You've read the Bible. If you want to be part of the family of Abraham, there is one particular thing you have to do. This is what has to happen. Don't give me all of this joined with Jesus stuff. You've got to do this. Yeah, Jesus is fine. Okay, sure, he's good. But this also. You have to do the right things, eat the right things, stay away from the wrong things. And Paul is very clear. And so let me be as well. He calls folks like that false brothers. Not misguided brothers. Not confused brothers. He calls them false brothers. Paul is saying, if you think you need Jesus and morality, if you think you need Jesus and church attendance, Jesus and tolerance, Jesus and abstaining from alcohol, Jesus and baptism, Jesus and missional living, Jesus and confessing to the priest, Jesus and wearing the right clothes, Jesus and raising your kids in a certain way, Paul says, you aren't a Christian in the weeds. False brother. You may be well-meaning, and maybe he's, may, you know, he, Paul's maybe talking about this particular group, and you're like, Rick, that, that, listen, man, I, I have a hard time in the weeds. I get it. Yeah, so do I. But understand the warning that Paul is giving. At least receive it as a warning that that's possible. And Paul says, we didn't yield to them for a minute. Technically, it says an hour, but it's the same idea. He's saying, the gospel which has come to you, I defended. And not just me. We. Which he, when he says we, he's not talking about him and Barnabas. He's talking about him and Peter and James and John. We did not yield to them. We are on the same team. We are against the kind of people, Galatians, that are confusing you right now. Okay? So that's Paul's defense of his message. But he was under attack as well. So how did these apostles treat him? Look down at verses 6 to 8. Paul says, look, those who seemed to be important to others, they added nothing to me. But instead, they saw that I was given a mission to the Gentiles just as Peter was to Jewish folks. Okay? So, again, this, this is equally important. Rick, you can't say everything's the same level of importance or it doesn't mean anything. I know, but really, this is equal, equally important. Paul understood, listen, guys, I am uniquely called to the Gentiles. I get it. My ministry is going to look different than yours, Peter. I get it. I'm, Jesus showed up and he revealed himself to me and he didn't just say, come follow me. He said, come follow me as we go to the Gentiles. A little different than what he said to Peter and James and John. Like, they didn't get the same message, Okay. 
He is uniquely called to bring the gospel of Jesus, this situated Jewish thing, to the entire world. And as I say that, I know there are some of us in this room who really get uncomfortable with that idea. Uncomfortable with the idea that Christians and that Christianity is meant in a, in a way to be a converting faith. Right? We have a hard time with that. Maybe if that's not you, just understand that that's most people in our culture and some of the people sitting around you. And so let's think together on this. You know, we don't like the idea of Christians trying to convert others, right? Well, listen, real quick. On the one hand, I would simply say that there's not a person alive who doesn't try to convert other people right? We all do that. And listen, if you're like, no, 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 I'm not. I'm just saying let everybody understand that everything's the same and you don't have to da-da-da-da. You understand like that is a uniquely, not just Western, but a uniquely middle and upper middle class and upper class idea in Western culture. That's not a self-evident truth. People of all times and all ages have not believed that. We didn't start believing that until Kant convinced us that we have, we have the, the spirit world up here and the material world down here and the noumenal and the phenomenal and they don't touch each other. It wasn't until that that we thought, eh, who cares? Que sera, sera. Right? And I know some of you are like, Kant? Like, who is that? I know, but just, you know, it's name dropping. That's what we do. So, okay, but listen. When you say to me, Rick, or not to me, let's say you say it to, um, let's say there's three people up on this stage. There's Pastor Rick, there's an imam, and there's a monk, a Buddhist monk. And we're, this sounds like the start of a joke, doesn't it? No, but we're up on the stage. I'm not going to joke. I'm, I really won't. But we're up on the stage. And you know what all of us are thinking? For you to flourish as a human, you need to follow what we are saying. I am saying, not what they're saying, what I'm saying. And he's saying the same thing, and this guy over here is saying the same thing. They're all saying it, and you're sitting there, and you're the fourth person on, and you're going, no, 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 you need to follow what I'm saying. And follow what I'm saying is that, listen, we shouldn't convert anybody. Everybody's really going in the same direction. We're all in the same place. Eh, maybe we're not so different, right? Maybe it's not that weird. You see, when it comes to this, when it comes to this passage, jumping back in, the work of Jesus was never just for one people group, one subsection of the population. Jesus came to seek and save all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds with all sorts of besetting issues in all sorts of contexts. It was never intended to stay in that little strip of land that's in nowhere near east. The land that was only how you get to the other places. It wasn't, that's not where it was meant to stay. And so Paul is saying, I was called to go take it to the world. You guys were called to work with these people here. And so what we're talking about is contexts. The apostles, uh, which, which is a, another word, big A apostles, that's another word for the earliest Christian leaders that Jesus chose. The apostles are acknowledging that Paul's ministry is going to look different than Peter's. It's going to look way different. And we'll get to that next week and how that all plays out in an argument. But it's going to look way different but it's the same ministry. Paul's saying they acknowledge the same one who worked for Peter's leadership to the Jews did the same thing in mind to the Gentiles. It's one mission, but it's going to look different. Why is that important? 
Because unlike most faiths, most um, even worldviews, Christianity is not bound to a culture. I know that in the American church we often do bind it. But it's not meant to. Right? It's not meant to kind of come at you with an entire cultural matrix and go, you have to adopt this, 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 and this. It comes at you with a savior that you have to trust who will then take your culture and go, here's the beauty and here's the brokenness. Here's the things that, that are awesome and here's the things we need to repent of and redeem. It's going to look different. That's why Paul would say in another one of his letters, he says to the Jews, I became a Jew so that I might win the Jews. And to those that didn't have the law, I became as one who didn't have the law, so that I might win them. He says, I became all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some. Just to say, the, the, the methods can change, the trappings can change, but the gospel cannot change. Ever. Ever. And that's driven home in verses 9 and 10. Right? Look down there. Paul says, and understanding the grace given to me, James, Peter, and John, those who seem to be pillars... Gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. All right, that's weird. Um, it's like, okay, and? I don't know what that means. Well, here's what this is. Most of us in this room probably know that Jesus had these 12 guys that he hung out with that he called his disciples or apostles, depending on um, which, which one of the first four books of the New Testament you read. He had 12 of them. Didn't go so well for one of them, right? Betrayed Jesus, uh, Brought in the Romans, felt guilty about it, killed himself, guts went everywhere, tragic. Like, it's just a bad story for Judas. Um, but within that group, Jesus had three that were really tight with him. And those three were Peter, James, and John. Now, that original James, he had already died at this point. He had already been killed. Uh, but the James that kind of replaced him was Jesus', Jesus younger brother, James, uh, the son of Mary and Joseph. And now... All of these guys were central leaders in the Jerusalem church, okay? And so when Paul brings them out, it's to understand they are central leaders. And then the right hand of fellowship thing, that's odd. Um, basically, a right hand of fellowship is a sign of solidarity. What it meant was we're on the same team, we're partners, we're in the same family. So when these guys gave to Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, it was a visible indicator that they all were preaching the same gospel in different ways to different people. All are serving the same Lord. All of their missions are united. And so when they say, when they told Paul, like, just remember the poor, it's a really ironic statement because the very reason Paul's there is because he was remembering the poor, <laughs> right? He's remembering those that in, in uh, Jerusalem who were in the midst of a famine, they weren't wealthy. And basically the, the entire idea and the reason why Paul says, I was eager to do this is because if we're all one family, then family helps each other. It's almost a sign that we are one family, right? In other words, the united front goes both ways. With the Jewish leaders, we share the same gospel. With the Gentiles, it's, and we, we all share the same resources, okay? Now, what I want to do this morning is drive this home by, by testing our message. Because what this is ultimately talking about, what this passage is ultimately talking about, is something that we call in Christian circles legalism. Now, most of us, I would guess, are confused on exactly what that word means. Because there's, it's, it's thrown out, especially in our context, right? If you're, if you're you know, reformed and evangelical church, the term legalism is a 
It's about as bad a word as you can throw out at somebody, right? Legalist, woo, like it's bad, okay? So let me, let me define it, because some of us have never heard it, others of us have misunderstood it. Legalism is not God saying that there are some behaviors that are good and others that are not. To say that God says adultery is wrong is not to be legalistic. To say that God says um, stealing should be out of place or self-righteousness even should be out of place for a Christian is not to say you're a legalist, okay? Legalism is believing that your standing before God is affected by those behaviors. You with me? You see the subtle difference? It's not just saying that like, hey, God, God says, yeah, listen, uh, you know, I mean, read 1 Corinthians. There's all these things that Paul is challenging the Corinthian church on. He, what, he's not being a legalist in doing that any more than he's suddenly the champion of the free gospel in, and only in Galatians. What he's saying is, in Galatians, don't base your, your identity, your value, your standing before God on those things. That's what legalism is. It is, it is thinking that your right morality, right behavior, right theology makes God happy with you or more happy with you. Because listen, many of us in the room, if you've been going to this church a long time, my guess is if someone asked you, hey, if you were to die tonight, stand before God, and crusade people are like, yep, I know this one. If you were to die tonight, stand before God, and he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? Everybody would say, Jesus and Jesus alone. But when you blow it, how do you approach God? Do you approach him like Jesus and Jesus alone? Or do you go, crap. All right, let me take some time and scrub things down a little bit before I come back to you, Lord, because I've, I've blown it. So what is it that's making you right before God? Huh. Or writer before God? See, it's never in what we say. It's always in what we do what we're doing the distance between here and here is a lot more than 12 inches it's practically saying Jesus work is fine and good but God likes me more because I do the right things or Jesus work is good but God doesn't like me as much because I'm not keeping my nose clean that is legalism and so listen very close to me if you, if you haven't been check back in the gospel is not come be good like me Please don't. It is not come be good like me. The Christian gospel is not believe in Jesus and be good. The Christian gospel is that you and I, no matter whether you were born in church or you just found your way in here, whether, whether your life has looked really good or you've been a train wreck that, that you're just, uh, you've prettied yourself up, but you're coming in here going, if they only knew. It says that all of us are hopelessly broken but that Jesus came to live and to die for all of our sins. Those in the past, those currently, and the ones that you'll do in 10 minutes. All of them. And when we trust in Jesus, it isn't that God kind of overlooks some of our sins. It's that they are all dealt with. Dealt with. Now, Some of you are like, but Rick, like, what if I mess up? It's been dealt with. But Rick, what if? No, no, no. It's been dealt with. It's been dealt with. 
Some of you are like, but Rick, don't I have to go to church and be baptized and serve and give money? Listen. When Jesus was crucified, there were two guys, a guy on either side of him. And one of those guys was just mad that he was dying. And so he kept looking over at Jesus saying, like, if you're who they say you are, get us down. Get us all down. And the other guy's saying, are you crazy? And he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That guy didn't do anything. He couldn't do anything. He was hanging on a cross. Like there's nothing, there's no morality you can do in that moment. There's no like, how, I can't get religious all of a sudden. You can't end up in synagogue. Like he's done. He's on a cross. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. I don't even know if he knew. I don't even, we don't even know. Did he have a good understanding of the nuances of the gospel? I don't know. Probably not. The dude was a terrorist. I know most of us were growing up thinking that it's a thief. You did, Rome did not crucify thieves. Okay? They crucified political revolutionaries. He was a terrorist. And he's sitting on the, on the side of Jesus and he says, remember me. All he knew was, I need rescue and that guy can do it. That's all he needed. And Jesus says, you're with me now. That's it. And some of you are thinking, Rick, <laughs> if this is true, what's going to keep people from just going and doing whatever they want? That is a great question. You know, my, my last church, there was a guy, I remember we were having this discussion, and he, he grew up, he was, he was the oldest kid. You know, he, he, he went to a, a military school, he was a leader, and he's a great dude, great dude, smart, really, really, really intense, and just a great guy. And I remember him going like, well, if me doing all the right things doesn't make God like me, why should I do it at all then? It was a great, it was a great question. It was like, ah, oh, he finally came to the end of himself and realized why he was doing it in the first place. The answer is love. Because you see, if your obedience to God is consistently driven by fear of punishment or fear of just him being disappointed in you, then you're not actually obeying God because you love God. You're obeying God to escape something because you're afraid he's going to squish you. And if you remember right, the summation of all the commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Oops. Jesus plus anything is nothing. But Jesus plus nothing is everything. And I said this last week, but let me say it again. If you don't believe me, if at the end of the day, I know you, you would probably stand up and say, yes, Jesus and Jesus alone. But if what you actually believe is that you have two people, both have accepted Jesus, Jesus and Jesus alone, but one can't seem to get their act together the way you can, and you go, that person can't make it in, then the difference between the two of you is that you can get your act together and it's not Jesus. That's the difference. That is not the gospel. It's not that you saved you. Okay, We are talking right now about the Christian doctrine of justification, being made right with God. And the Christian doctrine of justification is not that you get a blank slate. 
that it's erased, and that somehow now the question is, what am I going to fill it up with? The slate that God gives you is not blank. It's full. It's full of Jesus. That's what it's full of. It's not a blank slate. It is full of Jesus. He gives you a slate filled with his perfect life. God doesn't just make you neutral. He makes you covenant keepers. You did it right in Jesus. You did it right. And you can't add to that. You can't add to Jesus' work. Seeking to get God's smile through anything else is not Christianity. It's legalism. There's another kind of legalism that's also talked about here, and it's contextual legalism. Okay? Here's what I mean by that. Many of us in this room, not all of us, but many of us in this room grew up in churches that kind of pay lip service to what I just said, but then we'll say, well, yeah, but you can't be a Christian and have drums in church, and you can't be a Christian and go to certain movies, or you can't be a Christian and have an organ in church. You can't be a Christian and hang out in bars. You can't be a Christian and not hang out in bars. You can't be a Christian and live in certain neighborhoods or not live in certain neighborhoods can't be a Christian and hang out with broken people or never hang out with really broken people. You hear what I'm saying? What we begin to do, and this is just part of our makeup, something we have to be constantly aware of, is that we begin to attach a rightness to our practices. We attach a rightness to our worship. We attach a rightness to our evangelism. And especially in our tradition, we attach a rightness to our theology. And we say, well, you can't be a Christian not believe this. You can't be a Christian, or at least you can't be a good Christian and not be reformed, right? God calls us out of darkness into light. He calls us to a particular people, and all of a sudden you can't be, you have a righteousness attached to the people group you're called to, your passion for church planting, your particular theological tribe, whatever you want to call it. But listen, if we believe that everyone needs the gospel, and the gospel is not come be good like me, come worship like me, come, be, come, come read the same authors as me, but come follow my Savior, then can I tell you the rest of that stuff may be very, very good. And I think it is. Listen, <laughs> go to my office. I've got a lot of books. I like to read them. I have a certain theological uh, leaning. I believe it for a reason. I'm very passionate about it. But you've got to know that at some level it is very good but of lesser importance than Jesus. Lesser importance than the centrality of the gospel. I planted a church in Stanton, Virginia. I know none of you have heard of it. It's okay. Stanton, Virginia amongst hipsters, recovering moralists, and folks who uh, at the time lived in the hood. And now I'm the pastor of a church that includes full-time people in ministry, very successful people, and those who are giving church another try after wounds from their younger days. Those ministries are going to look very different. Very different. But both are about the gospel. Most of the other stuff, I'm not going to say all of it, but most of the other stuff is simply like, okay, you see this right here? It's a very loud contraption that we have to put behind plexiglass to make sure it doesn't overwhelm you. This is a method that would not work with everyone. It's not. Let's be honest. Method. Method. 
It seems to work in every method, but it's, I still think it's the method. <laughs> they are not the mission. People are the mission. And the very time at which the people that God has called us to, this no longer works, this is getting tossed out because the people are the mission. The gospel is what matters. I may have to get tossed out too because I'm really favorable to this stuff. But all the other stuff is simply the best way to communicate the gospel and reach those who haven't heard it. Did y'all know there's something called cowboy church? No, like literally, there's something called Cowboy Church, and there's several of them in Orange County. I looked it up. Several of them. Here's the thing. If they preach the gospel in a way that reaches cowboys, awesome. Because you know who's not in this room? Cowboys. We need that. Their ministry to cowboys, the same as our ministry to, the, to people who look an awful lot like us. It's okay. We need to learn to cling tightly to Jesus, tightly to the gospel, and lightly to the rest of our methods. We need to learn how to become all things to all people so that in all possible means we might save some. Where we live or who we hang out with or how we worship does not make God love us. Or keep loving us. He has loved us in Jesus. And in Jesus alone. Praise God. Would you pray with me? Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that this challenge to our freedom. The way that we, not just other people try to make us, but we ourselves try to bring ourselves back into bondage. Oh, have mercy. When we do it. And then we try and bring others into it. Don't let us do it, Jesus. Don't let us do it. Don't let me do it. Don't let my friends here do it. Let, us, let this be a place where the freedom of the gospel, that we, by faith alone in Christ alone, have the smile of God the Father that nothing can be added to or taken away from because we weren't the ones that got it in the first place. Hallelujah. There is no God like you. We betray you totally and you love us completely. And so we praise you, we thank you, and ask that by your spirit you would preserve us in this when everything in us wants to pull us away. And we ask it in Christ's name.